Hi, my name's Michael, and I'm a female alcoholic. And uh, I really want to thank Dave for inviting me to come participate. Uh, it's always a pleasure to participate in anything that has to do with Alcoholics Anonymous. And um, I felt really bad. You didn't have a lot of old-timers here. And um, I, that just makes me feel bad because it's old-timers and Alcoholics Anonymous that got me sober. I was just, when I was looking for people who stood up with over 20 years, uh, just last night or the night before, I was out having coffee with uh, three of the old-timers that go to my home group. And one had 39 years, one had 37, one had 36. And there's a lot of that kind of sobriety in my home, my home group. And I've been to a few other states where there doesn't seem to be a lot of old-timers coming around. And, and I don't understand that. And I know for me, I hope when I get a lot of years in this program that I keep coming to these kind of functions and I keep coming to meetings and, and uh, I keep carrying the message of Alcoholics Anonymous according to the big book. Um, anyway, do we have any Al-Anons here? How many Al-Anons? Oh, come on. <laughs> well, I just love Al-Anon. I want you to know, uh, last September, a year ago, September, I was speaking in uh, Toronto, Canada. <clears throat> and uh, I was speaking with this woman, this woman, she was the Al-Anon speaker. And I was just so taken by her story. I asked her to be my Al-Anon sponsor, but I could not believe she did the thing she did sober. I just could not believe it. She convinced me that Al-Anons have got to be sicker than the alcoholic. <laughs> and then I had to remember something my AA sponsors always told me. My AA sponsors always said that if you take an alcoholic and you remove the alcohol, what do you have left? A flaming Al-Anon. And um, I'm absolute proof of that because um, in my 14 years of sobriety, when I had about four years, I uh, had that perfect AA marriage. He drank again. I had that perfect AA divorce. And I did, si <laughs> I did uh, six years of my sobriety. I did absolutely everything I've ever heard an Al-Anon speaker share about doing. And uh, I truly know that this disease is a family disease and it affects everybody close to the alcoholic. Uh, so now today what I do, I've had a, basically what I do is I am, um, I hold down a full-time job. I do a lot of sponsoring. I do a lot of step work. And I do a lot of speaking. And that doesn't leave a lot of anything else in my life. I was at dinner tonight with a group of the people from Kentucky. And they kept asking me, do I do this? Do I do that? Do I do this? Do I do that? I had to keep saying, no, no, no. I don't do any of that. I've had a, a short-term engagement. But basically, I just do a lot of speaking, sponsoring, and hold down a full-time job. So my sponsor started getting worried about me. And she told me she wanted me to start dating. And um, she knows my history, so she laid down ground rules for me. She said, she told me that any man I dated had to have a job. <laughs> and then she said, Annie had to have a car, he had to have a place to live, and he couldn't live in his car. <laughs> so that leaves slim pickings in California. <clears throat> Anyway, when I called to the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous over 14 years ago, I had a formal ninth grade education. I didn't know how to work. I lived on welfare. I was reduced to prostitution, and I was a thief. And all of that was before I took that first drink at the age of 25. And when I finally took that drink, I immediately went downhill. <laughs> You're a little bit slow in Kentucky. <laughs> so as you can see, there's nothing in my background that has prepared me for speaking except for the fact that I am an alcoholic. And I speak from the heart, and I've always heard that Alcoholics Anonymous is the language of the heart where the heart speaks and the heart listens. And I really want to welcome all of our newcomers. And I'd like the newcomers to know that the absolute highest you get in Alcoholics Anonymous is sober. It is not a speaker. 
and I'm not an authority on AA. I'm just up here sharing my personal experience, strength, and hope. And the things I say from the podium are the things that had a profound effect on my personal sobriety. And I'd like to welcome those of you who are not so new but are having difficulty with this program. I saw a sign in an AA club that always gave me a lot of hope. And that sign says that you're not a failure unless you quit trying. And I really believe that's true. So please, whatever you do, just keep coming back. But I was told early on in this program that this program is not for spectators. This is a program of action. And that those actions are the 12 steps as laid out in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, Dr. Bob, one of our co-founders, said if you boil the 12 steps into two words, those two words would be love and service. And before he said that, he said, I want to emphasize the simplicity of this program. Let's not louse it up with Freudian concepts that are interesting to the scientific mind but have little to do with our actual AA work. And then in the big book, Under Doctor's Opinion, it tells me that many types of alcoholics do not respond to the ordinary psychological approach. So I'm here tonight to tell you that I'm one of those alcoholics. In fact, so is my mom. We both tried to recover from this disease through the psychiatric effort. Different times, but we went to the same psychiatrist. And, of course, the result was nil. But the good news is that today that very same psychiatrist is a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. (laughs) My mom and I both tried to recover from this disease through the religious effort, different times in different congregations, and uh, the result was the same. But believe it or not, today that very same minister that counseled me is a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I don't know if we drove these two men to drink or not. The truth is, and this is the truth, my mom slept with the psychiatrist and I slept with the minister. (laughs) I was willing to go to any lengths for a spiritual experience. (laughs) One thing I know for sure is that psychiatrist, that minister, and myself are perfect examples that AA works when other things fail. A little bit about my background. First of all, I'm Irish, German, and Cherokee and I'm illegitimate, and being born out of wedlock today is not a big deal. But when I was a little girl growing up, it was. And my childhood's pretty appalling, so my mom's defense, I'd like to tell you a little bit about her childhood, because as bad as mine was, my mom's was worse. And this program gave me the ability to have a relationship with my mom, even though she couldn't quit drinking. And I lost my mom a little over a year and a half ago. She died of lung cancer, and I had to practice love and service at home. My sister and I took care of her. We had hospice come in. And uh, my mom got to die with dignity at home. And uh, I had to watch this woman drink on top of morphine up until the day she could no longer swallow. And it's probably the hardest thing that I've ever done. But one thing I learned from this whole experience is that my whole life growing up, I was so focused on the things I hated about my mom, the things I didn't want to be like, that I missed all of her wonderful qualities. My mom had a lot of wonderful qualities, and, and I really miss her a lot today. But my mom came from an alcoholic background, and when my mom was 13, her mother was murdered in a drunken brawl. A drunk slit my grandmother's throat. So that left my mom out on the streets at the age of 13 trying to raise herself. At the age of 14, she had her first baby, which she gave up for adoption. And then she had me, and she did everything in her power to keep me. She later met a man, got married, had three boys, and we all moved out to California. That marriage soon ended in divorce, and my stepdad moved back to Colorado. So that left my mom out in California trying to raise four little kids. And we were raised on welfare. We were raised in extreme, extreme poverty, always having lights, gas, telephones turned off, always being evicted from our apartments, even sleeping in cars. And then I had to deal with my mom's alcoholism. I had to deal with her prostitution, and I had to deal with her suicide attempts. When I was 12, my mom got pregnant again. And this time she sent my three younger brothers to live with their real dad in in Colorado. Now, my three brothers were my very best friends. When you're sleeping in cars and always being evicted, you don't have a chance to make friends. So my brothers were my friends. 
So I feel like at the age of 12, I already had all these feelings that I later brought with me to Alcoholics Anonymous. And those feelings were of low self-worth, low self-esteem, not equal to and just not good enough. And that was a direct result of all that poverty. The drunken, the drunken psychiatrist pointed out to me that I had issues of abandonment. You know, I never knew my real dad. My stepdad went away. My three brothers went away. My mom's always trying to kill herself. And because of some other childhood experiences, I would say I'm a fear-based person. I have always been afraid of people, places, and things. And the two very important things I learned when I got to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous is, first of all, I learned that feelings are not facts. And all those things I used to think about myself were not the truth. And best of all, I learned how to walk through fear. And I learned that every time I walk through fear, I'm actually exercising faith. And this last couple of years, I've walked through one of my biggest fears, and that's getting on airplanes. It took me 12 and a half years of sobriety to finally get on that first plane, and it's only an AA request that gets me on them. I'm not so well that I do it for fun. And uh, and i got to tell you, your committee really <laughs> went through a lot of trauma because this plane crash that we had last week, I did not want to fly this weekend or last weekend, but just my being here is an example that I'm willing to walk through fear today. But, uh, you know, I don't even know how this works. All I know is right now today, when I get on that plane, I do not have any faith. But when I get off, I do. And I also found, I also found for me that I'm really not afraid of flying. I'm afraid of crashing. And it helps to get clear on what your fear is when you're asking God to remove it. But I want to tell you about the very first plane ride I took. The very first convention I spoke at, it was a... Uh, a uh, convention in uh, Duluth, Minnesota, and I was just full of this terror that I just couldn't get on this plane, so this AA woman was going to walk me through this fear, and uh, she drove me to the airport, but an emergency came up, and she couldn't stay. She just dropped me off at the airport, and it's 6 o'clock in the morning, and I'm alone in my head, and that's a very dangerous place for me to be, and I come from panic disorders, and I was so terrified, I started to put myself right into a panic attack, and I knew there was no way I was going to get on that plane. And I sat down and I started to cry and I finally started talking to my higher power. I talked to God like he's my very best friend, but I just said, okay, God, how do you apply the principles of this program to this situation? How do you apply the principles to this situation? And just out of nowhere, that little inner voice came and it said, Michael, why don't you get out of yourself and try and help somebody else? So I ran around the airport looking for little old ladies I could help with their baggage. I scared a couple of them. <laughs> They're not used to helpful people in Los Angeles. And uh, that's what I do today. Any time I'm in any kind of fear or anxiety, I look for somebody else I can help, whether I'm in the program or out of the program, and it, and it gets me where I need to be every time. Anyway, so when I was 13, my uh, when I was 13, my mom did have this baby, and I had to learn how to be a mom. I didn't even know how to be a kid. I had full responsibility of this baby. My mom's alcoholism took her out of the home. She was never ever around, and this little baby was sleeping in a dresser drawer. And I eventually had to potty train her and bottle break her. I was failing in school because I couldn't get to school because of this responsibility. Now, after doing my inventory, I found out I hated school anyway. When I went to school, I was an object of pity around my peers, and I was always teased about the way I dressed, and I was teased about my hair. And so specifically to get out of my home life at the age of 15, I opted to get married. And this man was 18. He lived in the neighborhood. He came from a similar background. And I have such a colorful past that I like to brag about this. I like everyone to know when I got married at the age of 15, I was not pregnant. At the age of 15, I had very high morals and high values. I had these two favorite TV shows I used to watch, and most of you are too young to remember these shows, but it was Donna Reed and Father Knows Best. 
And these were family programs. And because of these programs, I had these high morals and high values. My whole life growing up, all I knew is when I grew up, I didn't want to be an alcoholic like my mom, and I didn't want a prostitute like my mom. So when I got married at the age of 15, I had this high idea that I was Miss Donna Reed, marrying Mr. Father Knows Best. And unfortunately, it didn't turn out that way, and I believe the man that I married was an alcoholic. One indication is his name was Johnny Walker. (laughs) I didn't get it then. I get it now. (laughs) I want to share a story with you about that sister of mine, the one that slept in the dresser drawer. Because when I got to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I used to blame my alcoholism on my mom's alcoholism. I blamed the way I turned out on the way I was raised. And after I got to this program, I took a good look at that sister of mine. That sister came from from the very same background. In fact, I would say her childhood was worse than mine because my mom's disease had progressed. And my sister was literally forced to move out of the house at the age of 16. So she quit school and she moved out. But what she did is she took that high school equivalency test, and she had to take it three times until she finally passed it. With this test under her belt, under special youth program, she went to work for the city of Long Beach. At the age of 26, she retired from the city of Long Beach. She took her 10 years retirement pay, and she bought her own business. She later married the head traffic engineer for the city of Long Beach, and two years ago, at the age of 30, my sister was awarded Woman Entrepreneur of the Year. Now, even today, sometimes, I still don't get it. Same mom, same background, different reactions. And the difference is my sister is not an alcoholic. My sister is not bodily and mentally different from her fellows. My sister reacts to life situations differently than I do. So today I get to accept responsibility. You know, I can no longer blame people, places, and things. Yes, I am an alcoholic and I do have a disease, but today I have a solution. And for me, part of my solution is being accountable for my actions, my past actions and my present actions. So anyway, at the age of 15, I did get married. At the age of 17, I had a baby. At the age of 18, I had to get out of this marriage because this man took me through a whole new phase of alcoholism I never experienced with my mom, and it's called physical abuse. And he never abused me unless he was drinking. But he abused me to the point of cutting me up with a knife, and I had to have surgery to repair the damage. And so I got out of that marriage at the age of 18. And I feel like that's when I started on the road of being everything I swore I'd never be, doing everything I swore I'd never do, and I hadn't even taken a drink of alcohol yet. I always intuitively knew if I took a drink, I'd be an alcoholic. But it started out with me being a single mother living on welfare. My whole life growing up like that, I swore when I grew up I wasn't going to live like that, and there I was. Now, on page 23 in the big book, it says the main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than his body. So we're talking about the main problem being the mental obsession and not the physical allergy. So I know for me, I practiced my disease of alcoholism way before I ever took that first drink because I've always had the mental obsession part of this disease. And I practiced it in the form of compulsive overeating. I would shove food in my mouth instead of alcohol. And then I discovered that wonderful world of diet pills. And I don't know about... Kentucky or Ohio, but I know in California it's illegal to give these pills out anymore, but they used to give really good amphetamines, you know, methadrine, dexedrine. So I went on this diet for 16 years. (laughs) When I finally took that drink of alcohol at the age of 25, I immediately had the physical allergy. From that very first drink, I had the phenomenon of craving. From that very first drink, I had a personality change. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde You read about that in the big book, and the big book refers to that as a real alcoholic. And I personally am so physically allergic to alcohol that when I consume alcohol, I break out in a rash, these big welts and hives all over my body. And I was always too drunk to have a clue that that wasn't normal. And if I'd had a clue, it wouldn't have made a difference. But from that very first drink, I drank morning, noon, and night, and I did not draw a sober breath from the age of 25 to the age of 31. And that is not an exaggeration. I had a huge spiritual experience before I got to this program. 
And this was equivalent to the one that Bill had in Bill's story. And in the big book, it says, as a result of a spiritual awakening, you'll have a change in psyche, a change in attitude. It says you'll have a huge emotional displacement rearrangement. And this spiritual experience I had was not enough for me to achieve that. And I believe it's because I did not have a plan of action to go with it. But it was enough for me to come to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. So what I did with this experience is I went to this church. I counseled with this minister. I told him all about my spiritual experience. I shared with him all my character defects and all my shortcomings. And this man assured me if I got real active in this church and I read all these inspirational books and I did all this positive thinking and all these affirmations, that I could be everything that I ever wanted to be. And after I got to this program, I heard a man named Chuck C. say, if you're alcoholic, you cannot think your way into right actions. He said, if you're alcoholic, you have to act your way into right thinking. And I am absolute proof of that because I got real active in that church. I even became secretary of that church. And I struggled reading those books because I couldn't read very well. I did all that positive thinking, constant, constant affirmations. And what resulted is I ended up having a torrid affair with this minister. And it absolutely, it absolutely infuriated his wife. And um, the rest of the congregation wasn't too excited about it either. But the one thing I'm going to share with you now is the one thing I thought I'd take to the grave with me. As secretary of that church, it was my job to handle the money. And when I handled that money, I stole part of that money. And at that point in my life, I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt my only hope was God because I had just had a spiritual experience. And I turned to God for help, and I ended up seducing his minister and ripping off his church. So I truly know that feeling of hopelessness that they talk about in the big book. And I want to share two stories with you while I'm on the subject of the minister and I like to share this first story because it's the first time I was ever able to laugh at any part of my alcoholism. When I got to this program, I always heard that laughter was healing. But I always thought my story was just much too serious. And when I got here, I used to hang out at the very back of the room. And I have a friend named Teddy. And Teddy calls the back of the room the half-measure section or the denial section. And I didn't hang out back there for either of those reasons. I hung out back there because I couldn't read very well, and I was terrified that they would ask me to read something. And I literally could not say the word anonymity for over six months. So I'd hide out at the back of the room, and I'd hear speakers get up and share their stuff, and everybody would laugh. And at first, I just couldn't laugh. I just didn't think anything was funny, and I couldn't laugh. And then one day, one day sitting in the back of the room, a speaker shared something, and I just laughed. I had this big belly laugh. But I remember sitting back there thinking after having that belly laugh that that might be funny for you, but there's nothing, absolutely nothing in my background that I could ever laugh at. And then about two years ago or two and a half years ago, I was speaking in Seal Beach, and it was just my second time to ever give a talk, and my daughter wanted to come hear me. Now, my daughter got to this program for the first time when she was 15 years old. So before the meeting, she brought some of her program girlfriends over to my house. We sat down. We had coffee. And she proceeded to tell these girls my drunkalog, and it was just the first time I was ever able to laugh at anything. It was just a little funnier coming out of her mouth than out of my head. But of course, she's telling these girls all about the minister. And you know, I just never thought about how some of this stuff looked through the eyes of a little nine-year-old. And she's telling these girls that I am dragging her off to church every day. She's learning things like the Ten Commandments, the Golden Rule. I'm constantly preaching all of this religious stuff to her. She comes home from school at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. She opens the bedroom door, and there, naked in bed with her mom, was the married minister of the church. And when she first said that, I felt all this shame and all this embarrassment. And I looked at her, and I said, God, honey, that must have been a terrible shock. And she said, no, Mom, I don't know what shocked me the most, seeing that minister naked or seeing his artificial leg on the floor. (laughs) 
Up until that time, I forgot he had an artificial leg, and this is a big leg. I don't know how I forgot it. But trust me, this man in no way was disabled. After I got to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and I started working those 12 steps, I found for me the most important step was step nine. Now, step nine is the amend step, the step where we make restitution. And I recommend you do the first eight steps before you get to step nine. I know some people come into this program, they take a look at step nine. It's so scary. They turn around and they leave. Other people come in and start right in on step nine and make inappropriate amends. I believe the steps are in order for a reason. And I believe this one in particular should be taken with the advice of a sponsor. But I call step nine the freedom step. This is the step that truly freed me from the bondage of my past. And it's just not a coincidence that in the big book, the promises come after step nine. And it says before you're halfway through, you're going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. It says you won't regret the past or wish to shut the door on it and so on and so on. And I didn't have to wait to get halfway through step nine. That happened to me with my very first amends. That was going back to that church telling that minister I used to steal from the church funds, and he told me he knew that. And I set up a payment schedule to pay back the church. Then I had to tell him that I used to steal out of his wallet when he was in the shower, and he told me he did not know that. So um, I made restitution to him. But the neat thing about this whole experience is he shared with me at that time, he knew exactly what I was doing. By the time I got to him, he had two years of sobriety in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. When he lost his leg in that motorcycle accident, he was an alcoholic and a drug addict. And he actually died on the operating table. He had one of those near-death experiences, which for him was his spiritual experience. And that's what led him into ministerial school and becoming a minister. And even he could not get sober in church. And I'm not putting down churches, and I'm not putting down the psychiatric effort, because the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous makes it real clear that this program owes a lot to both of these institutions. And in the big book, it says, if you need professional help, do not hesitate to seek it. But I got to tell you, for me, it was all about the miracle that happens when one drunk reaches out to another drunk. Anyway, so I've been kicked out of this church, and uh, I'm 27 years old. I'm full on into my drinking. I'm living in an apartment I'm being evicted from. This is my normal MO. I'm always being evicted. Lights, gas had been turned off for a long time, but I still had a telephone. I got this call at 11 o'clock at night, and I could not believe the man on the other end of this phone. It was my real dad. Now, I barely knew this man's name was on my birth certificate, and he wanted to make amends for not being in my life, he wanted to get to know me, and wanted to get to know my daughter, so he offered me an opportunity to move to Colorado to get to know his whole family, and I did not want to go. I didn't have any desire to get to know him. I mostly did not want to move to the snow, but at that point in my life, I didn't have any place to go except for out on the streets, and deep down inside, I did have this little hope. If I did this geographic, maybe I could change, so I made that move to Colorado. I lived there for three months. In that three-month period, this man and his family could not wait to kick me out of the state of Colorado. In that three-month period, I ended up having affairs with bus drivers on the way over there, getting pregnant, having abortions, falling down the stairs, breaking my leg, ripping off his medicine cabinet, ripping off his booze cabinet, ripping off his money. And they literally kicked me out of the state of Colorado. I'm going to tell you how I broke that leg. Obviously, I was drunk. And in my neighborhood where I lived, the liquor stores closed at 12, so I had to make my final liquor run before 12. And it's snowing outside, and the stairs are very icy. I lived in a second-floor apartment, so I'm walking down the stairs, and I'm holding onto the railing with my right hand, and I've got my daughter on the left side of me trying to hold me up. And all of a sudden, I looked up at another second-floor apartment because the door had just opened, and a priest walked out. He had the collar, the robe, everything. He was definitely a man of God. Now, I am very angry at God. I'm angry at God because I just seduced his minister and ripped off his church. 
So I looked up at that priest and I let go of the railing with my right hand. I flipped up my middle finger and I said, F you, God. And I immediately fell down the stairs and broke my leg. <laughs> now, my daughter tells me that's when she started believing in a punishing God. <laughs> and today we both know it's because I was drunk. But anyway, my real dad was second on my list of amends to make when I started making my amends. I wrote this man a letter. I told him I was sober in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I wanted to make restitution for my behavior up there. And I sent him a check trying to set up a payment schedule to pay him back. And basically what he and the family did is they sent me the check back with a little note that said they didn't want my money and they never wanted to hear from me again. However, I did stay sober, but I really did want to make these amends. So on every Father's Day and on every birthday, I would send him a card and I would tell him I was still sober in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and I still wanted to make restitution. And he would never, ever acknowledge me. And I did this for years and years and years. And in 1985 or 1986, I finally got a reply back. And I just can't tell you how excited I was when I saw the return address on that envelope. And I ripped open the envelope. And the only thing that was in it was a picture of his tombstone and the obituary of the newspaper. He had just died. And that was the family's way of telling me not to bother trying anymore. And there are no words to express the pain I felt. You would have thought I knew him my whole life, and I didn't, but I took it real, real hard. And the people in Alcoholics Anonymous pointed out to me I don't make amends for approval. The big book tells me I don't make amends to be forgiven. I make amends to clean up my side of the street. I make amends to stay sober. So all I can tell you is that the actions I took worked because not once, not even once, was I ever tempted to drink over that rejection. I'm just sorry he didn't get to know the person I am today because I know he would have been proud. So I've been kicked out of this church and now I'm kicked out of a state. <clears throat> I'm living back in Long Beach, California, across the street from Franklin Junior High. Franklin Junior High is a gang-related gang school. My daughter's now 14 years old. And she's running with a very dangerous gang. And I am doing awful, humiliating, embarrassing things to my daughter. I'm not only embarrassing my daughter, I'm embarrassing this entire gang. <laughs> this is really true, too. I was living in another apartment I was being evicted from. Lights, gas, and telephone had all been turned off for a very long time. <clears throat> and I was always hiding out from the landlord, so I kept my drapes closed all the time. My apartment's always dark. My apartment is so dark that now I'm seeing evil spirits. And unless you've seen them, they're hard to describe. But... They were these evil spirits, and they would do things like chase me around the house, and then I would do things like crawl out of the house on my hands and knees, butt naked, across the street to the school, and warn my daughter and her gang friends not to come home. The house is possessed with evil spirits. <laughs> and this is the kind of stuff I did that makes me wish I was a blackout drinker. <laughs> and I'm not. I get to remember all of it. Anyway, uh, the neighbors felt sorry for my daughter. They would feed her sometimes. They would hide her out. Sometimes they would feed me. Once we were both next door to the neighbors, she was feeding both of us. And on her counter, she had a, had a bottle of 100-proof vodka. Something happened outside a car accident or something. My daughter and my neighbor went to check it out. Well, I just wanted to drink some of that vodka down real fast and not get caught. So I just grabbed the bottle, and I started drinking right out of the bottle. And I don't know how much I drank or how fast I drank it, but I do know it was enough to stop my respiratory system. At that point, I stopped breathing. And I can remember the sensation I couldn't breathe, and that's the last thing I remember. I don't remember the paramedics. don't remember being rushed to the hospital. don't remember being resuscitated. By the time I had any memory, I woke up strapped down to a hospital bed with a nurse slapping me in the face because I was screaming obscenities at her. I was a very mean and vile drunk. But this experience did get my attention. This time, I'd almost died under the influence of alcohol, and it scared me. I did not want to die out there, so I finally started listening to my daughter. My daughter used to tell me on a daily basis, she would say, Mom, it's the alcohol. If you wouldn't drink, you wouldn't do those things. She said, just smoke pot. So... <laughs> 
This is my only experience smoking pot, but I was trying really hard not to drink that day, so I smoked this pot with my daughter and her friends because I don't have any friends of my own. And afterwards, we're walking down the street, and I have on these tight, tight jeans, and I have both my hands in my pockets. Now, I don't know if I tripped over my own foot or cracked, but I tripped, and I just started to go down. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever been on pot, but to me, it was different. First of all, I had the sensation that I was in slow motion, and I could have swore that that cement was coming up at my face. And no matter what I did, and I tried really hard, I could not get my hands out of my pockets. So you have, you have to picture a grown woman laying with her face smashed with cement. Both of her hands are still in her pockets. And everybody standing around me was laughing hysterically. <laughs> and I'm in a lot of pain. I really hurt myself. I mean, I really cracked myself. I'm practically unconscious. I'm in a lot of pain. But I could hear everybody laughing. And as I heard their laughter, that's when I had that moment of, of clarity. I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that pot was not the answer. <laughs> And I went right back to my drinking, and I drank at the same pace for a while longer. And I don't even know what finally happened, but I finally reached a point you hear about in this program that I was just sick and tired of being sick and tired. And I woke up one morning on my front room floor. I was laying in a puddle of fluid, and I don't even know what the fluid was, but I took the first three steps, and I didn't know what the first three steps were. But I knew that I was powerless over alcohol, and my life had never, ever been manageable. And I already believed that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. I just didn't know if he would because of what I'd done to the church. And this was my way of turning my will and my life over to the care of God as I just got on my knees. And I just said, God, please, I don't care how you do it. But please just get me sober. And I managed to get to a telephone. I called a prayer line affiliated with the church I was in. And I asked them to pray for me because in my mind... I thought if God wouldn't listen to my prayers because of what I'd done to the church, maybe he would listen to their prayers. And they prayed for me for 30 days. And within 30 days, I was sober. And um, it's just a series of God coincidences that uh, got me to Alcoholics Anonymous. I was trying desperately hard in that 30-day period not to drink, and I just couldn't not drink. I would almost make it through the day, and then I'd go on a huge binge at the end of the evening. And... um, I was just so physically, physically sick from withdrawals, I just I just couldn't do it, and I, and I couldn't stand being alone. So one day I broke down, and I went over to my mom's house. Why my mom? I don't know. My mom's practicing alcoholic. But one thing I haven't told you about my mom yet is that my mom had tried to get sober in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and it did not work for her. And the truth is, my mom did not work the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. She would do the AA two-step, the first step, the twelfth step, no steps in between. And if you talk to my mom about getting a sponsor... She would challenge you, and she'd say, where in the big book does it tell you to get a sponsor? So consequently, she never did get that much sobriety. But a series of coincidences started to happen, and I called them God coincidences. There was this man, and he was the mayor of Signal Hill, and he just happened to be driving by my mom's apartment. He just happened to remember her from years ago when she was an AA. He just happened to stop and try and talk her into going to a meeting, and she wouldn't go. She didn't want any part of Alcoholics Anonymous. So he started working on me. And I didn't want to go. I hated Alcoholics Anonymous. I knew this program did not work. My mom proved it. I'd never been to a meeting with her, but I watched her go in and out for years. But the real reason why I didn't want to come here is because my mom hung around with uh, some AA men. Never once saw my mom with an AA woman, only AA men. Today today I know it's called 13th Stepping. They did a lot of 13th Stepping. I was... um, I was very young at the time, and they used to do this 13th step right in front of me. And two of these men, two of these men used to make passes at me. 
And so that's what I thought about the men in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I did not want to come here. But this man treated me with dignity, and he treated me with respect, and he talked me into going to that meeting. And I was so physically sick from withdrawals that uh, there's no way I would have made that meeting without a drink. And I ended up going to that meeting. I ended up having two beers before the meeting. That's the last drink I ever had, and that was on November 10th, 1979. And I don't celebrate my birthday till three months later in January, because when I got here, we had this one old-timer. Now, if you mention the word drugs, he would jump up, cuss you out, tell you to go to N.A., and then he would split. So I learned early on in my sobriety to keep my mouth shut about those diet pills. But what that did is that allowed me to take diet pills for three more months. However, when I quit drinking, I started working my steps. And at least for me, when I was working my steps, God revealed to me right away that I wasn't sober if I was abusing those pills. So I gave those up three months later. Anyway, so I went into that first meeting, and I've got two beers in my system now, so now I've got a little personality change going on. Okay, I've admitted, I've admitted I'm an alcoholic, but I'm not an alcoholic like you guys, because you guys are alcoholics like my mom. It's the disease of perception, but I believed it. And the first person shared that he'd been a blackout drinker. Now, I looked at my 14-year-old daughter, and I said, I have never had a blackout. And the next person shared that he'd been to jail. I looked at my 14-year-old daughter and I said, and I have never been to jail. And the truth is, I was a home drinker. I was always too drunk to get out of my house to go get arrested. When I crawled out on my hands and knees, the little gang members would take me back and put me to bed. (laughs) But the third person that shared, shared that he had five 502s. A 502 is a drunk driving. And sometimes I'm embarrassed to share this, but I looked at my daughter and I was defiant. I had my arms crossed just like that. And I said, that does it. I have never ever had a 502 and this time my daughter looked at me with all the hate and all the contempt a little Al-Anon could have in her eyes and she said word for word she said mom you don't even have a car (laughs) but when she said that something clicked for me at that point I knew I was looking for the differences so if any of you are new or nearly new I hope that you're not trying to judge your alcoholism by my actions because I have a story that's very hard to identify with but maybe you can identify with the feelings maybe you've had those feelings of low self-worth low self-esteem not equal to and just not good enough maybe you've had those feelings of overwhelming fear and it's the kind of fear that paralyzes you it keeps you from going back to school it keeps you from getting a better job it did that for me but it also kept me from getting on elevators couldn't drive over bridges couldn't drive on freeways get on airplanes I literally could not leave the city of Long Beach it made my world real real small I used to have severe panic attacks behind my fear and sobriety or maybe you're like that alcoholic in the big book grandiose and bitter than to me it's all the same for an alcoholic it's just that my ego was in reverse but the next person that shared was my point of identification and I know If she hadn't been in that meeting that night, I wouldn't be standing here tonight because of my attitude. But she shared that she didn't drink till later on in life. She said she practiced her disease of alcoholism way before she ever took that first drink, and she did it in the form of compulsive overeating and amphetamine abuse. But the one thing she shared, and this is the real reason why I stayed, she said her whole life growing up, some kids wanted to be doctors, some wanted to be lawyers. And all she ever wanted to do when she grew up was just not to be an alcoholic like her mom. And when she said that, I started to cry, and I couldn't stop, and I cried throughout the rest of the meeting. And that is absolutely the first time in my life that I ever felt like I belonged. And I uh, went over and I latched onto her. She was my very first sponsor. And she only had 18 months of sobriety, but that was such a long time to me. If you told me you had 30 years, I wouldn't have believed you were a real alcoholic. I could not get together 24 hours. You know, I just wanted to get together 24 hours. And I wish I could say that sponsorship lasted, but it didn't. She fired me. She didn't. She didn't even tell me she was firing me. She just dropped me. She stopped talking to me. 
And today I sponsor her hairdresser. So I just found out last year why she dropped me. They just got into a talk about Alcoholics Anonymous. And my name came up. And this woman was amazed to find out I was still sober. She told this hairdresser she dropped me because I was too hardcore. I'm a very sensitive alcoholic. She hurt my feelings, you know. And I'm driving home. And I, well, the truth is she gave me a resentment. I started to get a resentment. I'm driving home. I'm going, hardcore? What does that mean, hardcore? You know, and I had to really give it some thought. And first of all, when I got to this program, I was huge. I was very obese. And I had this wild, wild bleach blonde hair. I don't know if you've ever been drunk and tried to bleach your hair. But you do this thing that's called overlapping. And when you overlap, your hair breaks off. And then I would forget to wash it off at all. So I had these bald spots. And then by the time I got here, I was too drunk to even try and bleach it. So what I had is I had these big black roots with bald spots and different lengths of broken off blonde hair. And it just was wiry and it went all over like this. Now, today that would be in style, right? (laughs) But back then it wasn't. At least today in California it's in style, but back then it wasn't. But every time this woman came to pick me up for a meeting, my house was full of little gang members. The gang hung around my house. And she did not come from my kind of a background, and she did not know what to do with someone of my stature. So the whole point of this story is this woman knew she was in over her head, and she took care of herself, and we both stayed sober. And I'm supposed to share with you what it was like, what happened to change me, what I'm like today. And what happened to change me were the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. So I always talk about the steps. And I'm going to share with you how I evolved and and went through the steps. But I had a woman in my life that made me do those first three steps in a formal manner out of the big book. And and she helped me read, thank goodness. But um, we did it by reading the preface, the three forewords, opinion, Bill's story, there is a solution, more about alcoholism and how it works. And we got on our knees and we said that third step prayer. And the most powerful thing to me about that prayer was the part that said, take away my difficulties. It did not say difficulties with alcohol. It said difficulties. So to me, that meant God could take away all my difficulties. She had me study in the big book, big book, page 64 to the end of the chapter, where it gave me very specific directions on doing my inventory. If you just look at that diagram, it's confusing. You have to read all those pages. And on that very first page, it says, though your decision, meaning step three, is a vital and, crucial, and vital and crucial step. It could have little permanent effect unless at once, followed by a strenuous effort to face and be rid of the things in ourselves that have been blocking us. And it goes on to say liquor's but a symptom. We had to get down to causes and conditions. And my sponsor told me at once meant that I have wasted my time with the first three steps if I don't immediately start on step four. And she said the key word on that in those first two paragraphs is the word decision. Step three is only a decision. It is not an action. And she said the way you follow up on that decision, the way you actually turn your will and your life over to the care of God, is you have to take the actions of four through nine. And she told me how you continue on a daily basis turning your will and your life over to the care of God is you have to live in 10, 11, and 12. And within those pages, I found out I had to do an inventory on resentment, I had to do an inventory on fear, and I had to do an inventory on sex. And then when you're doing the reading, it says you have to go back to those columns and look at it from an entirely different angle. Now you have to look at your part. And it's specific about your part. It says, was your part selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, frightened? When you get to sex, it throws in the word inconsiderate. So she had me incorporate that into a fourth column. And she said, because this was my inventory, I had to list everything I felt guilty about. And she had me do that under resentments. I had to say I'm resentful at myself because I'm a thief. How does it affect me and what was my part in it? And then I went on to step five, sharing my inventory with another human being. You know, I've done things worse than seduce a minister and rip off a church. 
But that felt the worst because that was stabbing God in the back. And I didn't think I could ever share that with another human being. But I found for me step five was not about embarrassment and it wasn't about shame. Step five was all about humility. And in the 12 and 12, it gives the most perfect definition of humility that I've ever heard. It says humility is a clear recognition of who and what we are, followed by a sincere attempt to be all that we can be. And when I did step five, I did five, six, seven, and eight all at one time. My sponsor didn't trust me to go home and contemplate on my own character defects. She thought it was, she thought it was her job to point them out to me. And it's a good thing she did because I would have missed this one. At the very top of my list, she told me I had self-pity. Well, I told her in the most pathetic way that I thought my self-pity was justified. Look at my childhood. And she told me in the most loving way. She said, Michael, alcoholics cannot afford justified self-pity. And then she gave me that old cliche, pour me, pour me, pour me another drink. We got on our knees and we said the seventh step prayer. And I can honestly tell you today, self-pity has been totally removed. And it's been replaced with overwhelming gratitude. On step eight, she had me do it in three columns. First column was short-term amends that I could do within six months. Second column was long-term amends that eventually took me 12 years because I had a lot of wreckage out there. But third column is we worked out ways and means of making restitution to people who were dead or institutions I couldn't get hold of. And she assured me on step nine, it didn't matter how long it took me to do step nine, as long as I was willing, doing whatever I could. But she said, most importantly, while doing step nine, I still had to live in 10, 11, and 12. And I love Chuck C. Chuck C says this program is about uncovering, discovering, and discarding. And to me, step nine is the discard step. Um, all I know is in the big book, it says you have to disregard the other man's faults entirely. And I know there's a, good, a lot of good psychologists and a lot of good psychiatrists out there today, some of them 12-step programs, but that was not my experience. I went to a psychiatrist and a psychologist before I got here. We spent a very long time in Uncover and Discover, never once got on with discarding, and that allowed me to stay in the victim role for a very long time. So now I have to make these amends, and I have to disregard the other man's faults entirely. So when I made amends to my dad... I never once said to him, but you were an older married man. You got my teenage mom pregnant and you abandoned us. I never once said that to him. I just made amends for what I had done. And for some reason, my resentment towards him went away. And I don't know how that works. And I don't have to know how it works. I just have to know that it does. On step 10, my sponsor taught me to do a spot check inventory. Immediately, if I know I'm in the wrong, I do four through nine on it. But she has me cast up a balance sheet every night before I go to bed. And on this balance sheet, I list all my assets for the day, all my liabilities for the day. And the liabilities are any character defects I got into, anything I might have to share with my sponsor, any amends that I still might have to make. My assets are everything I did right that day. And I always have more assets than I do liabilities. So I get to look at myself in a whole new light. My sponsor said, because I come from low self-esteem, it's important that I'm aware of the things that I'm doing right. On step 11, I do my form of prayer and meditation in the morning. I say my third step prayer, seventh step prayer on my knees. I always pray for God to direct my thinking. I pray to be divorced from self-pity, dishonest, self-seeking motives. I pray to know God's will and the power to carry that out. And then I do a form of meditation where I try to listen to God. And, you know, not once in that meditation has God ever come down and told me anything. But as a result of that meditation... I intuitively know how to handle situations throughout the day that used to baffle me. And I have, I have had profound spiritual experiences at unexpected times. My sponsor really did stress the 12th step, and she broke it into three parts for me. That first part, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of doing those first 11 steps, she said did not necessarily mean a belief in God. She said a lot of us believe in God when we get here. 
Some people come in here and they have to make the 12 steps their higher power or have to make the group their higher power. She said when you've had that spiritual awakening, it's where you've actually had that huge emotional displacement and rearrangement. You've had that change in psyche. You've had that change in attitude. Something about you is just different. You've had a transformation, and it comes from deep within. And when it comes to carrying the message... If I have 15 days this Friday, I give my phone number to someone who has seven. And she said length of time was not the requirement for sponsorship in this program. She said the requirement for sponsorship in this program is that you have done your steps because the real job of a sponsor is to guide you through the steps of the program. And I had some people in my life that were really instrumental in my sobriety. And these two men, they were brothers. It was Bill and Frank Honeycutt. And Bill's uh, deceased now. But Frank used to always ask me how I was doing. And I had done my steps. I was on step nine, but I still had that unsettled feeling. You know, I always felt squirrely. So I'd always tell him that I'm squirrely. I just feel squirrely. Well, first of all, my sponsor told me I had to stop using the word squirrely. And then Frank would, um, I would tell Frank things like, I I guess I got to do some more work on myself or, or write some more or something. And Frank would always, he would say things like, if you have done a thorough fourth and you live in the tenth, you don't have to work on yourself anymore. He said, for God's sakes. Don't study yourself anymore. He said, what you have to do is get out of yourself and work with another alcoholic. And I get to experience all this stuff today because I've sponsored a lot of women in this program, and I've got some that are whiners. You know, they have done their steps, but all they do is they just whine about everything. And if it's big, major stuff, I I will go through the gates of insanity with them. But if it's just that everyday whining that all of us go through, I always do what Frank used to do to me. I try to bring him back to the steps. And I'll always say, are you working with any other alcoholics? And this is a normal reply. Well, nobody ever asks me. Well, first of all, if you're only whining in meetings, no one's going to be attracted to your program. But this is what this is what Frank would say to me. He'd say, nobody ever asks you. You just go to a meeting and you watch for the newcomers that stand up with less than 30 days. The newer, the better. You go up to one, you say, do you have a sponsor? If they say no, you say, I'm it. They're brand new. They don't know they have a choice. <laughs> It works. It really does. (laughs) Another thing I do is when I go up to a newcomer and I uh, give them my phone number, I always get their phone number because it's hard for newcomers to call. And if I'm in a bad place, I call the newcomer. And I don't know if it helps the newcomer, but I know it helps me. Applying these principles in all my affairs, that means I have to practice love and service at work. I have to practice love and service at home. I can't come into this program, walk that walk, and talk that talk, and then go out in the world and act like a jerk. And my sponsor knew a lot about Bill W., and she told me right from the start that Bill did not like to use the same word twice. That character defects and shortcomings are the same thing. They're both the exact nature of your wrongs. And step five that we get from step four, principles and steps are the same thing. So if I'm applying these principles in all my affairs, I'm applying these steps in all my affairs. And she told me if I was willing to grow along spiritual lines and I stayed current in my steps, eventually, someday, God would reveal to me when it's time to give up other destructive behavior. The big book says we have to get rid of all those old ideas. My sponsor told me it was not okay for me to just not drink but to go ahead and steal. It's not okay for me to just not drink but to go ahead and prostitute. It's not okay to just not drink but to abuse my daughter. And it's not okay for me to just not drink but to binge my brains out and take diet pills. She said if I was working the last part of the 12th step, In Alcoholics Anonymous, those things were not okay. But thank God she told me I didn't have to do it all at one time or I surely would have failed. But all these things I just mentioned were listed on my step six, my character defects, and I don't practice any of them today, and I haven't for a very long time. So anyway, I'm uh, six months sober, and I'm on my ninth step, and she told me I had to get a job. I had to be fully self-supporting through my own contributions, and I don't know how to work. And I went out there, and I got my first job, and it was real scary for me. But that's where I learned how to work. I learned things like how to get there every day, how to get there on time, how to not leave early, how to only take a 30-minute lunch break. I did not know how to do those things 
and I learned in Paranalcolics Anonymous. And I worked my first job full-time for eight years. I stayed on another two years part-time after I took another full-time position. So I was there a total of ten years. And when I left that job, I'd worked myself up to assistant administrator. And in that first eight-year period, I went back to high school. And I graduated from high school in 1985, and I was 36 years old. And I graduated with a cap, a gown, a real ceremony, and 450 18-year-olds. <laughs> These kids were so bad, they were kicked out of day school, so they had to go to night school, so I just fit right in with them. But I want to tell you how I got into my character defects right after I got that first job. First of all, I work my program according to the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. When I'm in the big book, I feel something spiritual. I don't know. I, I guess it's the power that worked through Bill and the power that worked that works through the first hundred alcoholics. If I want to feel the immediate power of God, I read the three forwards. That's how that book affects me. And I do not get that feeling when I read the 12 and 12. But I like the 12 and 12. There's some good stuff there. And in the big book, there's only two paragraphs on step six and seven. So I feel that Bill must have known I was coming to Alcoholics Anonymous, so he had to be a little more specific about character defects. So he wrote step six in the 12 and 12 just for me, and he nailed me on my character defects. First of all, he said greed to the point of being a thief. He said, gluttony to the point of being ruinous to your health. He said, God will not render you white as snow without your, without your cooperation. And then he says, the man that repeatedly works on his other defects of character grows in the image of his creator. But one thing he also mentions, he also mentions that a lot of these other defects of character are harder to remove than alcoholism, because alcoholism is not a natural instinct, and some of these other defects are natural instincts gone amok. So anyway, that led me to believe that I couldn't just sit around and wait for God to remove these defects of character, I had to help him. Like that defect of stealing, I had to stop stealing long enough for God to remove the obsession. That one was a hard one for me. It was habit for me to steal. And I'd catch myself stealing the petty cash at work. <clears throat> I'd come to, and I'd take one hand, I'd pull my other hand back, and I would say, Michael, you don't do those things today. You're trying to work an honest program. I can honest tell you, honestly tell you I have not stolen anything since I've been in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I have come darn close but I haven't stolen anything, and today the obsession has been removed. I can't believe I was ever that person, but I was. But the one defect I did get into is my defect of fear. I was afraid God couldn't provide me with the money I needed to get to and for my brand new job. So I prostituted myself for the last time in Alcoholics Anonymous. I was six months sober, and I was on my ninth step. And I got back from that, and I never know, what do you call that? Do you call that a job or a gig? I don't know what you call it, but whatever you call it, I got back from it. And I just had this... Very sick, overwhelming feeling. In fact, I was in tears. And all of a sudden, that sick, overwhelming feeling went away, and it was replaced with a spiritual experience. And I had an inner voice talk to me, and that inner voice, loud and clear, said, Michael, this definitely is not God's will for you. If you just stick with the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and you apply these principles in all your affairs, you will never, ever have to do this again. God will always give you what you need when you need it. And that has been the case for me. Since that day, I've not once had my lights, gas, telephones turned off. I've not once been evicted. I've not once been unemployed. In fact, today I drive a brand new car. I live in a cute little house, and I have matching furniture. <laughs> That's a big deal for a drunk who used to sleep on the floor. A little bit about the job I have today. I work Well, the job I've had for the last six years, I've worked in the musical theater industry. I went and I applied for this job at the bottom in the accounting department of this equity corporation. And equity means union. That means they deal with big, big major stars. And I was not qualified for that position, but for some reason they took a chance on me. And I had to take a chance on them because it was scary for me to leave my other job. And I went back to school, and within a period of time I worked myself up to business manager. 
And as business manager, I deal with millions and millions of dollars. And when I got to this program, I did not know how many zeros were in a million dollars. And I get to participate in union negotiations, and I get invited into some of the homes of some of the most famous people you see on stage, screen, and TV. And sometimes I'll see myself in a picture with a very famous person, and I just get overwhelmed. I think, how did I ever get from the gutters of Long Beach to being invited into some of these places? And how that happened is I worked the last part of that 12th step. And I applied these principles in all my affairs. I want to tell you about the very first uh, party I went to as business manager. I had 10 years of sobriety. Everything in my life was absolutely perfect. This was a birthday party for Debbie Reynolds. Now, all of you are too young to remember who Debbie Reynolds is, but when I was a little girl, she was my favorite star. She was very famous, and I, and I just loved her. And so I'm at this party, and I'm very impressed. Everything in my life is perfect, and I have 10 years of sobriety, and I almost drank. In the big book, it says you will be placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected if you're in fit spiritual condition. Well, I was not in fit, in fit spiritual condition in the first place. I had not been to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous in two weeks. I am much too busy growing in the business world. I wasn't working with any other alcoholics. I'm just much too busy growing in the business world. And I got into this thinking, thinking, and I started thinking thoughts like, well, maybe now that I have this very impressive job and I drive a new car, I have an education, I'm really not that little girl from the other side of the tracks. Maybe I'm really not an alcoholic. And one healthy thing I've done for myself is I do not have anonymity at work, and I did not want to embarrass this program by drinking in front of, in front of my coworkers. So I put it off that night. I was going to try drinking the next day. I cannot believe how cunning, baffling, and powerful this disease is. But anyway, anyone who's worked those steps as hard as I've worked those steps, I think God just seems to intervene because the next day I was asked to pay a 12-step call on a makeup artist. This man hadn't shown up at work for two weeks. He was held up in the motel, and the motel was trying to get him out. So my executive director asked me to go see what I could do. So I went to his, uh, his motel room. I knocked on the door and identified myself, Michael, alcoholic. And for some reason, he answered the door. If that had been me, I would not have answered the door. But I, I was speechless. I did not know what to say to him. I did not recognize him. I thought I had the wrong room. The man I knew had all this blonde, wavy hair. He's a makeup artist. The man standing in front of me was bald-headed, ten times his normal size, profusely sweating, bleeding from head to toe because he kept falling into objects. And he smelled of alcohol. He smelled of urine. And he smelled of vomit. And as I stood there speechless, I had another spiritual experience. I had an inner voice talk to me again, and that inner voice said loud and clear, Michael, this is you. You are not like the people you were with last night. If you drink again, you are standing in front of a mirror. And that man doesn't know it, but he's the one who paid the 12-step call on me because that night I got my fanny into a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous and I recommitted to this program. I go to more meetings than I've ever gone to. I work with more alcoholics than I've ever worked with because I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the longer I'm sober, the more I need meetings. The longer I'm sober, the easier it is for me to forget where I came from. I can't believe I almost forgot, but I almost forgot. And the best thing about speaking for me today is I get up here, I constantly remind myself where I came from. I'm going to share just two other things with you, and I'm going to close. I'll tell you about the job. I just recently had a job change. The musical theater company I was working for is has a $2 million deficit, not sure if they're going to stay open, underhanded things are going on. In fact, they brought in a whole new group of people and fired everybody except for me. I was the only one there. I had the most time there. I had six years. And um, anyway, there were things going on there that did not fall in line with me working in a 12-step program. So I started praying to God and asking him to direct me to where he wanted me to be. And so anyway, this um, company that I worked for for those eight to ten years approached me. They offered me position of administrator of a retirement home. And I turned them down. And as soon as I sat down at the desk the next day at my, my current job, 
I had the most sick, overwhelming feeling that I've ever had. I knew that I had closed the door on God's will for me. And uh, I had to do a lot of writing about it. You know, I had to really find out why I had turned them down. And I found out, and it's it's embarrassing to admit this with 14 years of sobriety, I turned them down out of ego. It's much more impressive for me to stand up here tonight and tell you guys that I work with movie stars than to tell you I work with old people. And so anyway, thank goodness that job came back to me with a better offer. And um, I was able to accept. So for the last few weeks, I've been administrator of a retirement home. I hated it at first, and today I love it. You know, I just love some of these old people. I just uh, get to do love and service, and some of their, their lives are so fascinating. I just feel it's a gift to be able to work with them. Last story I'm going to share with you is how I came to terms with God. I have, how I came to terms with the God I have in my life today. I told you my daughter was 15 years old when she got to this program. When she was 18 years old, she had three years of sobriety, and she and her girlfriend were leaving an AA dance, much like this one's going to be tonight. They were in the parking lot of the dance. A man came up to him with a gun and forced these two girls in the car at gunpoint, and he kidnapped them. He knocked the one girl unconscious and brutally raped my daughter for over two hours. I hate the word rape because it sounds like it's just about sex. But rape is also about terror, and it's about violence. And the whole time this was going on, my daughter knew he was going to kill her anyway. She was so angry at God, it took her two years to remember. She did say a quiet prayer to live. This man was drunk. He was drinking the whole time. He had a bottle of alcohol in his pocket. He drank throughout the whole ordeal. And at the point where he is forcing my daughter into the trunk of the car, somehow she got the courage to at least make some kind of an effort to try and save her own life. And she uh, slugged him in the face as hard as she could. He tripped and fell down, and the gun fell out of his hand, and she ran down the street naked and got away. And at that point, he got back into the car, rolled the other girl out in the street, and he took off with the car. So both girls lived. But the road of recovery was real hard, and it was real long. And I'm not even sure it's over with yet. My daughter and I felt absolutely betrayed. How could God let this happen to us? We were both sober in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. How could God let this happen to us? We were both working these steps as hard as we could, and this is a spiritual program. But the hardest thing for me to deal with was a sentence in the big book. It was one of my favorite pages. It's page 449, and it talks about acceptance. And I still love the part on acceptance, but that one sentence says, absolutely nothing in God's world happens by mistake. Well, Clancy says alcoholism is a disease of perception. I'm still an alcoholic. I still get my disease of perception because I perceive that to mean that if nothing in God's world happens by mistake, then that had to be an act of God. It had to be an act of God, and I wanted to leave Alcoholics Anonymous, and I wanted to leave God because I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt I didn't want any part of a God that could operate like that. And thank God for this man named Bill Honeycutt, Frank's brother, He just took me by the hand and he said, Michael, God is good and good is God. And if it's not good, it's not of God. He said man has free will. That man was acting on his free will and your daughter was just a victim. He said if man didn't have free will, we wouldn't all be sitting in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. We'd all be perfect people. And when he told me that, I had a spiritual release and I knew he was telling me the truth. And I love to hear my sponsor, Polly, talk. She always talks about finding God deep within. And that's what it says in the big book. It says we find God deep within. And on that same page, it says it may be obscured by calamity, by pomp, by worship of other things. And when I'm into fear and I'm into calamity, I feel disconnected from my higher power. And that's when I so desperately, desperately need the people in Alcoholics Anonymous because if God is deep within me, 
something God's deep within you. And it's at these times that God will reach out to another member of this program and pull me back into the sunlight of the Spirit. And that's what happened to me through a man named Bill Honeycutt. So I came to terms with my God again, but I still had so much trouble with that sentence in the big book. I sponsor a lot of women in this program. A lot of women have had tragedies worse than my daughters, especially because I do so much speaking. I attract women that have had tragedies. One of them actually had her daughter when she, the recovery home was trying to get hold of me that this woman was in because they knew my tapes were out there and the recovery home contacted me. She had six months of sobriety and her daughter had just been kidnapped, raped, beaten, tortured and set on fire. And I had to walk through this with this woman and it took four months for her daughter to die. But um, this woman did stay sober and she got through all of her steps. She's probably one of the finest examples of Alcoholics Anonymous that I've ever met. And she just works with others as much as I work with others. But anyway, um, one of these women made the mistake of telling me that her tragedy must be God's will. Because in the big book, it says absolutely nothing in God's world happens by mistake. This woman desperately needed comfort, and I went off on her like a crazy woman. I started screaming to the top of my lungs that that wasn't written by the first 100 alcoholics, and that's not in the first 164 pages of the big book. I took that big book, I slammed it down, and I said, that's not even the first two editions of this book. Only I said it a lot louder, and uh, I made this woman cry. And I knew at that point that I was the one who had a problem. I had a resentment about something in the big book. I tend to be a big book thumper, and that was a bad place for me to be, but this resentment is not only hurting me, now I'm hurting other people with it. And so I came to a place of really being willing to give it up. And I prayed for a very long time for God to help me with that sentence in the big book. And about a year and a half ago, I was with my sponsor, Polly. She was the speaker at a meeting. And she was sharing about a a tape out by Clancy, and it's called Alcoholism, Disease of Perception. And right when she said the words, Disease of Perception, I had the biggest spiritual encounter that I have ever had. I had an inner voice talk to me, and I couldn't hear another word Polly said, and I couldn't see anything else in the room. That inner voice said, Michael, you know what happens in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous as part of God's world. What happens when you're working those 12 steps as part of God's world? The progression of all good is part of God's world. What happened in that car nine years ago was part of man's world. And when I was able to separate man's world from God's world, I was able to come to terms with that sentence in the big book. And I, too, can stand up here tonight and tell you absolutely nothing in God's world happens by mistake. That's how I got to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. So two weeks after I had that spiritual experience, through a weird series of coincidences, I found myself sitting down at a dinner table having dinner with Dr. Paul, who wrote that sentence in the big book. And I was at such peace, I did not have to tell this man about my resentment. Because I knew at that point, it did not matter what he meant when he wrote it. What mattered was how I perceived it. And sometimes I have to work on my perception, so that perception can work in my life. And that might not work for you, and that's okay, because I truly believe that God works for each one of us at whatever our level of understanding is. That's why what works for you might not work for me, and what works for me might not work for you. But the beauty of Alcoholics Anonymous is whatever you believe, it will work within the 12 steps. And since that day, that man's heard my talk. We've had lots of spiritual talks. We've talked at lots of conventions together, and today I consider him my spiritual advisor. And he told me that he did not mean anything like that when he wrote that sentence in the big book. He was not thinking of man's inhumanity to man. He said, my spiritual experience was the best explanation he could think of as to why evil exists in this world. And I am so thankful I paid attention to something I read in the 12 and 12 under step 10. It said restraint of pen and tongue. Because when I found out this man was still alive, 
I can't tell you how many times I sat down and started to write him a letter and tell him exactly what I thought about him and exactly what I thought about that sentence. And if I had done that, I would have missed out on this gift because he is a gift in my life. And he has received lots of those letters and lots of those phone calls. And what he does today is he gives them my telephone number. (laughs) Anyway, I want to thank you for allowing me to be here. I know today I've been catapulted into what Bill calls the fourth dimension of existence because today I know happiness and peace. But best of all today, I know usefulness. Thanks.